In ancient days, there was a particular plane of particular interest to particular people. Upon this plane rested five cities, and we know the two crowns in the jewel, or jewels in the crown, you might say, Sodom and Gomorrah. We've all heard of them. We've all uh, understood the story. But there were three other cities there with them, and they all shared certain characteristics. In this time in history, these cities, these areas were known as city-states, empires and countries as you and I know them today, didn't exist. Instead, there was a potentate upon a throne within a particular city, and he controlled as much area as he was strong enough to control. And when they weren't strong enough to control a particular area, they might side with their neighbor or their friend or their relative or whatever the case was. And in this intermingling of power and people, they shared certain cultural characteristics. Even though they shared a certain measure of autonomy, they shared characteristics as well, and these similarities ranged from warfare and agriculture and hospitality and other things. One other thing was practicing imposition of cultural dominance. Practiced in various ways throughout the area, some through combat, forceful court action, and arranged matrimony. And in Genesis, the 19th chapter, in verses 4 through 8, we have a picture of this particular practice in action. To fast forward a little bit, we have visitors coming to meet with the nephew of Abraham, Lot. And these visitors are attractive to certain people, whether physically or whether as an opportunity to force certain cultural dominances upon them. Whatever the case is, we have a brief glimpse into what it was that made these cities of the plains such a problem in the eyes of God. Here we have a very clearly defined, perhaps even shocking example of that which got them crossways with God in the first place. And thus we have the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. More specifically, the destruction of the cities of the plains. Now I'm going to answer a question that's on a lot of people's minds. I'm just going to answer it right off and then we can be done with it. Why these two cities? Well, it wasn't just these two cities. Genesis, the 19th chapter, and verses 25, and then in 28, the Bible says, So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities that grew on the ground, and then he took, verse 28, then he looked towards Sodom, talking about Abraham, and towards all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which crept up like smoke of a furnace, and it came to pass when God destroyed these cities of the plains." These five, which we have record of, when they were overtaken by another contingency of militaristically minded people, were destroyed because of the, iniquity, the iniquities found therein. And there are a few things that this wonderful, uplifting story tells us about God and about ancient days and so on. And the first one is that God has patience, or God has limits whenever it comes to His patience. 2 Peter, the third chapter in verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's people have always been subjected to the consequences of sin, and because of this, God has demonstrated His sympathy for the plight of our earthly sojourn. The reality is, our spiritual minds are shrouded in a physical body with physical and even spiritual impurities. And yet, in spite of these realities, in spite of the allowances that God has made for our human natures, such as the plan of redemption, repentance, confession to one another, prayer, 
and so on. God's seemingly endless patience has limits. So in keeping with our review of memory lane, let's take a look back at the first establishment of the law. You might recall a story in Exodus, the 32nd chapter, what should have been an uplifting experience when Moses ascended Mount Sinai and he was given the law and he was given the foundation upon which this law would be built in form of the Ten Commandments. He had ascended Mount Sinai. He had received the first copy of the Ten Commandments. And upon completion of its delivery, God commanded Moses to descend the mountain. To quote God Himself, Exodus 32nd chapter and verse 7, Your people whom you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now I'm relatively new to parenting, but I've noticed in the few months that I've been involved in it, that when Baron becomes dirty or whenever he becomes intolerable, loud, whatever the case is, he's always my son. I find that interesting. Whenever he's annoying to be around, your son. Go take care of your son. I don't know if there's any correlation to that at all. But all of a sudden, when the people commissioned Aaron to build golden calves, a golden calf rather, all of a sudden, God is telling Moses, Your people, whom you have brought out of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Now get down and go take care of it. Now what's interesting about this, God, you know, the ever-patient God, the one that will accept me and my flaws, and I don't have to do this right now. I've got plenty of time to mold my life around His Word for the time being. I've got oats to sow and whatever the case is. This God who behaves in this way had this to say about Moses' people. Exodus 32, verse 8 through 10. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is our God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of, e the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. In other words, to put it in Oklahoma or perhaps certain parts of Texas speak, get out of the way, I'm going to kill him. Now even though Moses spoke on behalf of the people of Israel, 3,000 people died as a result of this particular transgression, and there were many in this particular instance. And first of all, idolatry is a much more serious transgression than we modern enlightened people give it credit for. We've decided that because we don't have physical shrines containing physical items in our physical homes, or we don't have neighborhoods that are, that are turned over to this particular form of worship, that we're not idolaters. Because we can see past the imagery, we can see past the nonsense, so to speak. That our cultivated minds know the difference in an inanimate object and a living ruling deity. So what is it that maintains the majority of your time and your energy? What do you spend the most of your time thinking about? What do you worship? And I don't mean on Sundays or Wednesdays. What devotion does your life reflect? Have you, mm, have you ever heard of sports? Travel teams? Have you ever heard of higher education? Have you ever heard of the engagement ring? And all of these, in and of themselves, not being particularly bad things, command an attention that God simply does not. Evidently, it was a serious enough 
problem that God told Moses, stand aside, I'm going to kill these people. A little bit later on, years down the line, when a guy, Josiah, was around 26 years old, we give Josiah a lot of credit, and rightly so, because the Bible says nobody was like him before, nobody was like him after. But he was not an eight, I, I, I tend to think he was not an eight-year-old righteous man. He was eight years old when he took on the throne, and yes, he was a righteous king. I'm betting at eight, he might have had a little bit of learning left to do. The Bible, according to the timeline, says that he was around 26 years old when he really got things going. On the day when a scribe named Shaphan brought him a book which was found in the temple. Evidently, this book had been so long forgotten that when Josiah, who was said to be a righteous person, heard it read before him, he tore his clothes and he sent his servants to a woman named Huldah to speak to the Lord on his behalf. See, when they opened this book, they found for themselves statutes, Scripture, you might say, that they were not fulfilling, that they hadn't been fulfilling for years. And understandably, this concerned this righteous person. Now, Josiah is sorry for the state of Judah. And according to 2 Kings, the 23rd chapter, he intends to repair what he can regarding Judah's degradation of the will of God. Still, don't forget God's patience has limits. Because whenever Huldah got her word of God back to Josiah, she had this to say, 2 Kings 22 and verse 16, I will bring calamity on this place and its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be aroused against this place, and it shall not be quenched. That wrath came a few years later in form of a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, who showed at that time very little mercy regarding what these people were going to experience. But wasn't Josiah sorry? Weren't the people sorry for what they had done? Did you know that there comes a time when God's patience reaches its limits. Romans, the first chapter, talks about those who professed to be wise, but instead they became fools, and they changed the glory of incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and so on. Verse 24 of Romans 1, very interesting. He says, therefore, God gave them up to uncleanliness. Are you starting to notice a theme here? You might have noticed this phrase, God gave them up in other areas. Does God ever give up on His people? Well, not according to the vast majority of the sinful state. God doesn't give up on me. I've got time. I can live how I want when I want. God won't condemn me. Now, whether in the context of the unrighteous in the days of Rome, the early Israelites with Moses, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Jews under Josiah, or the 21st century American Christian when mankind insists on maintaining his corrupted and rebellious state, God will allow it. Verse 26, God gave them up to vile passions. Verse 28, He gave them over to a debased mind. Hebrews, the sixth chapter, which we'll notice later in the meeting, paints a horrific word picture of a person who is so insistent on their godless state that it becomes impossible to renew them again unto repentance. We'll supply some context a little later on. Now, if God's wrath against the five cities of the plain says anything, it says this, righteous patience carries with it righteous limitations. And if you insist on acting unrepentant, God will leave it to you. 
with only expectations of deadly consequences to keep you company between good times. Now that said, we face another little dilemma that people like to bring up. Is God just or is He merciful? Because He can't be both. Critics of the Bible like to ease in on what they consider a surefire home run. God can't be just and merciful. God can't judge me and love me. You ever heard that phrase before? You, you don't judge me. Because did you know that if you judge somebody, you hate them? That's the, that's the new thing. Hatred or judgment equals hatred. Don't cross the street in traffic. Don't tell me what to do. Don't hate on me. Well, you shouldn't cross the street during traffic. I will do what I want. I will go where I am led. That's a little extreme, but not really, is it? Based on most college campuses that you can visit. Psalm the 86th chapter and verse 5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. If only the Bible just said that, we would all be saved. We wouldn't have to do anything. Unfortunately, that pesky new dispensation comes in, Acts 17 verse 31, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Hmm. Now, impending judgment carries with it a myriad of controversies, especially by the worldly perspective. One of the most common attempts to expose contradiction in God and His Word is to disclaim it by saying that His mercy and His judgment cannot coexist. Now, admittedly, God's reaction to the cities of the plains could be seen as extreme to avoid a person void of, of context. A righteous person, however does not become engrossed in the vilest of human behaviors and then by, devoured by God's fiery judgment overnight. It doesn't happen like that. And the sins of the five cities of the plains were deeply embedded into their culture and into their daily lifestyles. Now, some hinge their physical existence and by extension their very souls on the statement that God loves me too much to condemn. Or the question, if God is so loving, how in the world can there be a hell? Some people base their existences on that, their eternal souls on that. In other words, how can God be both judgmental and merciful? Incidentally, the world has the same criticism of Christianity as the rally cry of, Don't judge me! circulates throughout all social groups, all religions, all educational institutions, all governing bodies. Don't judge me. Now consider Abraham's inquiry upon hearing of God's intentions to reward these evil cities and their deeds. Genesis, the 18th chapter, verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing as this. God told Abraham, I'm going to destroy these cities. Abraham said, To slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God is indeed judge of all the earth. But He is a righteous judge. Our mistake is assuming that God thinks or judges as mankind does. But remember that He does not share our biases. He doesn't share our motives. He doesn't share our guilt. He doesn't share our petty agendas. As much as we like to spout tolerance and coexistence, we as a human race are a very intolerant and existence-crushing bunch. Paul told the Romans in Romans 1 or 2 and verse 1, you therefore are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. There we go again, a get out of judgment jail free card. Mankind is flawed by its own thinking, is prone towards hypocrisy, and assumes that God suffers from the same lack of judgment skill as we do. 
But the writer goes on to say in verse 2, But we know the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. The truth of which he speaks is the incorruptible truth of God's Word, which incidentally carries with it factors of both grace and mercy, and accents the judgment of God to the degree that mankind can indeed be saved. Here's the kicker. Assuming that certain conditions are met. Those conditions can be all balled up and rolled into one word. Obedience. Simple obedience. Is there any way that we might know or better yet understand these conditions? Titus offers us a little explanation as to how the grace of God works in the midst of a sinful people. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. Grace works in conjunction with judgment in that through grace we might forego that judgment and instead mercifully enjoy redemption through obedience which we certainly do not deserve. Foregoing the righteous judgment of God means choosing an alternative to that which separates us from Him through obedience. That is, where the world most dramatically misunderstands judgment. Don't tell me I'm wrong no matter what. That's what they say. Now when Abraham returned the goods of the five cities of the plains after his defeat of King Amphrel, he met a man named Melchizedek. Now this is a bottomless pit of speculation and wonderful inspiration at the same time, if you can imagine. We're not going to get too deep into Melchizedek. We are going to use him, though, to point out this one simple thing. Genesis 14 and verse 8 says he was a priest of the Most High God. Hebrews 7 calls him King of Righteousness. Melchizedek just met Abraham for the first time after this defeat of this contingency of kings, which tells us what? That God was known in the area... God was known in the area outside of the immediate circle of friends of Abraham. Why does that matter to us? That tells us that God doesn't just go around looking for an evil city and going, because He can. God's knowledge, or godly knowledge, had evidently circulated in this area, which makes these people accountable for it, whether they practiced it or not. You know the Word of God, you're accountable to it. Have you heard of the Word of God? You're accountable to it, just like these five cities were. Furthermore, Romans 1 makes mention of the unnatural element of homosexuality, a common practice in various cultures of Abraham's day. Simply put, the knowledge of God had circulated throughout this region, and as in the days of Romans 1, the cities of the plains were without excuse regarding their rejection of God's natural law. Thirdly, something else we might consider whenever we look at this. And on a more positive note, a godly person can make a change for a godless one. James 5 and 16, we know the effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. And why is it that we're often tempted to glory in the misfortune or lack of success in others? There's a little secular parable, you might call it, that goes something like this. A, a uh, well, let's just be fair to everybody. It could be a, 
a, a woman or a man, doesn't matter which one, comes forth telling a story about whatever horrible thing happened to brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, and you say, why don't you clarify that point for me? I didn't quite hear what you said. And they say, I already told you more than I heard. Now, have you been that person or do you know that person? That person lives in this world. That person is 90% of the people we know outside the church, hopefully. Why do we glory in the misfortune of other people? There is one glaring element to this story that we've not yet examined, and that is, when God shared His plan regarding the sinful cities of the plains with Abraham, we see a surprising reaction by Him, at least by today's standards. Genesis 18, 23-25, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you destroy this place to spare fifty? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be destroyed as the wicked." Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. In other words, can your mercy upon the righteous not sway your judgment of the unrighteous? Now there's so much information that we don't have time to get into tonight, but you should get into it. Number one, it's very likely that not only did Lot have a few extra daughters than the two that he escaped with, he probably had some sons too. There's biblical evidence of this. The reason that's important is because that factors into Abraham's thinking. He got down to ten people. Ten! Are there at least ten righteous people for whom you would spare these cities? Abraham's example does not stand alone in the Old Testament. In fact, we've already referenced a few places in the Bible where righteous people have made intercession for sinners. Remember when God said, get out of the way, I'm going to kill these people to Moses. And Moses said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? There's more to this story too, but Moses stepped between them. Remember Josiah, king of Judah. He said, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people in all Judah concerning the words of this book that I have found. For great is the wrath of the Lord aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that has been written. These people made intercession for those who were in God's crosshairs. And it didn't always work. The people of Israel were saved. Josiah and his bunch, they were Josiah's generation was. But God said, I'm still going to take them out. So it's a mixed bag. And as we eventually read in the text of all three cases, results were mixed. Some of the most powerful and surprising material deals with praying on behalf of those in sin. On Jesus' Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 5.44, But I pray to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. Acts 8.24 Pray for the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. That's when Simon the sorcerer was reprimanded by Peter, one of the greatest apostles of his day, the greatest apostle of his day, some would say. Whenever he asked to buy the Holy Spirit's gifts, and he said, stand aside, you have neither part in this matter. Now you ought to pray to the Lord to fix it. He said, pray for me. Pray on my behalf. So upon whose behalf do you pray? Historically in the Lord's church today, God's people have made a difference in the lives of those in sin, whether through literal prayer or simply letting your, so, your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You can make a difference in the world, and though that difference may not be physically discernible or in line with our way of thinking, 
that change is necessary. The gospel may reach someone it may never have reached if it weren't for you. So how seriously do you take your role as intercessor towards those without God? I had a lovely experience dealing with this once upon a time. And when I say lovely, I'm being sincere. It's not going to sound like it, but I, I still get a kick out of it. I preached something similar to this once upon a time at a congregation, and a lady came up to me. She was kind of the if General Patton or an 85-year-old lady, this would have been her. And she came up and she said, I'm not wasting my prayers on no sinner. And of course, what can you say to that? But, okay. There, there really wasn't any getting around it with her, I don't suppose. Now, we did talk to her a little bit about it. I don't think her mind changed. Because some Christians don't want to waste their righteousness on other people who haven't earned it. But I ask you the question, how many of us have earned that which has been imparted upon us. Somebody prayed for you once. I suggest you pray for somebody else too. We can make a difference for people. We can make a difference for sinful people. We can make intercession. It may be that somebody has done this for you and you'll never know. Isaiah the 53rd chapter and verse 4 beginning there. Just a little tidbit. Outlines when the greatest person ever to have existed made intercession for the vilest people ever to have existed. Surely he has, been, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Now, we may have questions surrounding the nature of God and His treatment of the people on earth, but one thing is certain. The judge of all the earth does right. Furthermore, Judgment Day is on its way. As we've already alluded, Acts 17 and verse 30, the writer says, Truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. Now you can either be afraid of it, or you can anticipate it. It all depends on that little obedience factor. He provides opportunity to be better than we were before, to make positive change towards godliness, to follow examples and be examples of righteousness in a world bent on stifling it. The judge of all the earth does right. And He makes it possible for you to be right with Him, to be baptized and added to the Lord's church. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Mark 16 and 16. Or, for those of you still thinking about Hebrews, the sixth chapter, or gives you opportunity to restore your good standing with Him through repentance and confession of sins. I told you, we'll provide some context to that scary little Scripture we touched on. But for the time being, know that if you still have control of your heart and your conscience, repentance is attainable. Repentance is possible. And if you have once obeyed the Gospel but have fallen away, you can be restored. James 5 and 16 were instructed to confess our trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Now, this tradition that we have, and that's what it is, it's a scriptural tradition, but it's a tradition when we talk about making confessing your faults towards your brethren and the congregation will pray for you and so on. It's a wonderful tradition. It's helpful. It's effective. 
But if you don't want to do that, you can confess your trespasses privately. There's a certain degree to where you can even make intercession for yourself if one's godly, if one's sorrow is godly. If you truly are repentant, don't think that this is your only opportunity, but it is an opportunity. So take it if you can. Take it if you will. You're even allowed to do so before your brethren who will make intercession for you and help you as God has designed it. So please, if we can help you, please come while we stand and sing.